this panel, we're going to be discussing how um, fintech is expanding opportunities for capital formation and retail investment. And we've got a great lineup for you here today. I'm delighted to introduce to you. Um, we have J.W. Verrett, who is a uh, associate professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Then we have Jaime Werke, who is head of emerging regulatory issues at FINRA. Then we have Spencer Bogart, who is the um, <coughs> partner in block, at Blockchain Capital. And last but not least, we have Hardeep Walia, who is the founder and CEO of Motif, um, an interesting fintech application. So to kick things off, of course, you know, yesterday was an exciting time for the world of securities and particularly related to financial technology when it comes to ICOs. Um, we'll get into an ICO conversation, but before we go uh, into that in detail, I prefer to let's start uh, with you, JW. Uh, ICOs are sort of a great example, almost a microcosm of how our regulatory framework is interacting with financial technology. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what are some of the hurdles and opportunities in our regulatory space for financial technology, especially as it relates to capital formation and retail investors? That's a good question. Good. I love a compound question. It means I get to speak for a long time. So I may interrupt you. The, uh, the, um, there's been a long history. One of the things from teaching securities law, practicing it, and interacting with the SEC is you get to appreciate the long history of almost 100 years of federal securities laws, and they oscillate. They go backwards and forwards. And I think from time to time, when free market-oriented individuals get the helm and try to create opportunities for growth and capital formation, you got to watch over regulation because it's like a weed and the seed sprouts and it grows. So the moment the SEC creates things like unregistered offerings, Reg D, Reg A, things you might be familiar with, immediately the SEC begins to say, well, we'll add a, just a little requirement here and a little requirement there and maybe some audited financials just for a year. And they begin to look just like a bread and butter 33 Act offering. Uh, I think you have a lot of perspective at the commission of folks, commissioners, and folks going in and out who just sort of say, well, look, if you want to raise money, just hire a law firm, give them a couple million bucks, and, and you're ready to rock on a regular 33-act offering. But that's not uh, a process that is fluid enough for the innovations in capital that we've been hearing about today. So uh, there's been an attempt to create a new venue of crowdfunding that I think is almost for the most part, DOA, I think. It, it is so incredibly small. And it's telling, uh, partly as a result of the legislation itself, and then new restrictions put in place by the SEC. I think it's telling that New Zealand has a larger market cap in its crowdfunding market than the United States. I think that's a stain on the SEC. I, I think that's a national embarrassment. And I think that part of the reason there's been so much demand for ICOs uh, has been because of the failure of the SEC and Congress to create a viable crowdfunding regime. So in the ICO space, the SEC chairman has been saying technically uh, nearly all ICOs have to register with the SEC under the 33 Act. Under, a read, uh, under the reading of the, the, the current law's interpretation of the 33 Act, I think he's right. But that's not the end of the question. That's, that should only be the beginning of the question. And yesterday, a federal court uh, affirmed that reading. That understanding of what is a security and what should be regulated comes from um, things that existed prior to 1933. So we're talking about a 100-year-old view of finance that's being cookie-cutter applied to innovations creating uh, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain-based things that are like securities but also utility tokens and maybe primarily utility tokens, all kinds of cool stuff. 
And unfortunately, I think the SEC has its blinders on. Mm -hmm. But I think there's hope. And maybe in the next question, we can talk about yeah. hope in the future uh, for reform to help that yeah. space. I'd like to turn it over to Jaime, actually, on this. Uh, as one of the regulators, self-regulatory organization, FINRA, um, it seems that you guys have been taking a lead in trying to engage with the fintech community and trying to be innovators yourselves as a regulator. And uh, could you talk a little bit about the firms and technologies you're coming across and where you're seeing opportunities for regulators to adapt to this space and try to ensure that uh, capital formation and, and access for investors is a, is a real possibility? Sure. Um, so I have to first start off with the disclaimer that the views expressed here are my own and not necessarily those of FINRA. Um, with that out of the way, you know, about a year ago, we started um, an innovation outreach initiative at FINRA that was really designed to better engage with the industry on kind of broad spectrum of fintech issues. Um, and as part of that, we started having, we developed a fintech industry committee. We started having regional roundtables, including one here in San Francisco. We had another one in Dallas. We had one in New York. And we also engaged in fintech office hours or annual conference to talk to various firms. Um, and out of that, there are several things that came, um, some, some of which are publications. We actually just recently this week published uh, a white paper on RegTech that talked about the various innovations in that space um, and how, what are the regulatory implications or the potential benefits. We produced a blockchain report that, that came out a little over a year ago. Um, and we've done various investor alerts that touched on various uh, topics across the fintech spectrum, everything from crowdfunding to data aggregation to things around digital assets as well. Um, and from all that, I can tell you that I think one of the things that we have to think about as regulators is, is the balance, right? So it's this idea that it's it, innovation, I think, um, regulation can coexist. If you, if you have a space where you have innovation without any type of regulatory parameters, you potentially have a situation where you don't have real trust in what's going on, right? So um, if it becomes complete to the Wild West where any type of nefarious actions can exist, I, I think we'll all agree that's probably not the right place to be at. In the same perspective, I think if you have um, something that's kind of a stifling regulation where you don't allow any kind of new beans to sprout, again, I think we can all agree that that's probably not the right place to be at. So the, the trick becomes in where in, in that middle spectrum you find mm -hmm. is the right balancing act. And, and the way I like to think about it is really trying to find the, the right approach between what are the benefits that there are being found from the, from the forms of the innovation and not digging down to see this innovation is good or bad, but what are the potential benefits that exist there and, and what are the sort of things you're trying to protect against. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with that, you obviously have to work within the regulatory framework that exists now, but having a discussion with firms along those bases so you can better understand kind of what new risks are being developed, what risks are being eliminated, how you should think about the kind of the existing regulatory framework that exists. Um, that leads me to Hardeep. You are uh, a company, Motif. You guys have a fintech company providing uh, access, especially to retail investors, um, to help them invest in the things that they value the most. And you're also an example of a tech company that has navigated a rather complex regulatory framework. What have you seen throughout your process of building Motif and um, how you're serving your clients as well as the process for, for making sure you can serve them? Yeah, so um, I, I think uh, going back eight years ago when I started the company, um, I, I remember uh, uh, coming from Microsoft, I was not a, uh, in this industry. Uh, and I'm, I'm sitting down with my advisors and I, I said, look, this is the idea. We want to use data science and automation to make it easy, not just for retail investors, that was our first chapter, but also institutions to invest. Uh, and they turned around and said, well, you have two options, Hardeep. 
uh, you can be a broker dealer uh, and it'll probably take you about uh, a year to get your license. It might cost you up to a million dollars in, uh, uh, I'll tell you my securities lawyer joke uh, next, uh, uh, to, to go in and, and, and you're gonna have lots of security uh, legal bills um, or you can be an investment advisor. Uh, that'll cost you $5,000, 30 days in the mail, you'll get your license and no one will ever check. I said, great, that's, that's, that's terrific. Like, I, I want that one. They said, well, you know, you might have to change your business model quite a bit to accommodate. Um, and in, in the end, we ended up getting both. But um, uh, we started with the broker-dealer. Uh, we got to know FINRA. And I remember my first letter from FINRA as part of the NMA process uh, they added us to the new and novel list, and I remember trying to high-five my compliance officer, and she turned around and said, no, 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 this is really bad news, Hardeep. I said, why? We're, even FINRA thinks we're cool. And they said, no, 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 in this industry, you want to be old and boring, otherwise nothing moves. Um, and that was my first introduction. And, and then when you, uh, as a new fintech company, you want to follow the path of other fintech companies, so you reach out to other CEOs, and, and, and the advice you get is kind of twofold. You can either put your head in the sand and pray no one shows up. And there are a lot of fintech companies who do that because there is a patchwork of regulation and sometimes no one knows who's in charge and so you can take advantage of that uh, uh, similar to what an Uber or an Airbnb, especially if it's state regulated. Uh, or you can do the daring thing and start to engage with the regulators. And the challenge with that is it will, um, luckily I wear a turban, you'll get lots of white hairs, um, and, and, but the engagement process minimizes risk, right? When, when you look at, uh, there's someone from Lending Club versus Prosper, the, the, you can actually study the strategies they took from a regulatory perspective and going in. So for us, we decided to engage, and we engaged with our, our online brokerage business, we engaged with the SEC, we're getting into the crypto space, that is a whole adventure in <laughs> itself. Um, but it is this lessons learned on what you need to do. And one of the things we've taken across innovating within the retail, the underwriting, the institutional space, is we realize there's a uh, time that it takes. I call it the Goldilocks approach to regulation. If you push for something too quickly to happen, the system fights back, and cards is a great example of I thought was genius, but ahead of its time. Um, uh, but, but if you go too slow, it, as a startup, you're never gonna go in. So you're really trying to tailor this, this middle path, if you will, uh, and you have to have very clear views on that. And in our case, we've decided to engage with whatever regulatory, and there are things that have taken us, that are pretty easy to get done, but it's taken us two years of working with regulators, getting them comfortable. Um, and, and we have uh, uh, decided to take the slow and steady path uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I've got banks as investors. So there, Goldman, JP Morgan are investors in our company. Uh, we also have Arthur Levitt on our board. So he, he obviously uh, uh, encourages us to take regulation very, very seriously. But I think it's worked for us. And I think the advantage of being a fintech startup versus the big incumbents um, is that we can work around the established regs. And, and, and everything we've done, even our approach to crypto, is we've taken an existing framework and tried to work within that versus praying that it, the regulation will, will catch up on its time. Mm -hmm.
I think that leads us really um, nicely into, Spencer, you work with a lot of crypto firms, um, startups, and, and trying to invest either even, even using cryptocurrencies. But mm -hmm. um, tell us about the process that your firms are going through and, and what they've been facing uh, with uh, trying to approach that regulatory environment. Yeah. Um, what have you been seeing and where are the, uh, let, let's start there. Sure. So, I mean, I think probably a little bit of backstory helps here. So, well, for one, Blockchain Capital is a venture capital firm that invests in blockchain and crypto companies. Uh, I've been doing this since 2012, 2013, um, and I've invested in about 70 companies in the space. So, if we, if we get a little bit of history here, I mean, I think first Bitcoin kind of storms onto the scene, right? And we had this big kind of outstanding question of, okay, how do we fit this into the current regulatory and financial system? Um, and it's very, very challenging. I mean, it's easy to tackle some things like maybe custody, uh, maybe the simple acquisition of it. But what about if you're a bank allowing your clients to send a payment over the Bitcoin network? Well, you have a requirement to know your service providers, but how do you know who processes your Bitcoin transaction? Right? It goes out over a network, it's processed by the network, it's processed by a miner that you don't know. So when a regulator comes knocking and says, hey, who messed up on this transaction? You don't really have anybody to point to. Right? So we end up with this weird kind of square peg and round hole problem. Um, I think the first reaction to that was, okay, well, let's strip out the crypto asset on top of this. Let's take the blockchain technology. Let's get rid of this asset that is public. Anybody can use it. That sounds dangerous and open. Let's not do that. Um, that was the whole enterprise blockchain theme. It was a probably two-year kind of investment theme, I think, for the whole industry, um, which was, again, let's build enterprise blockchain technology that you can control, that we can all of a sudden reverse transactions. We can, we can do all the things that we do in the traditional financial system. Unfortunately, what I think most people found out was that you can't actually effectively separate the public crypto asset from the network. So far what we've seen, and again, it's still early in the story, is that that asset actually plays a really important part of incentivization in the network for it to function properly. And once you remove that, what we're back to is essentially a database. It might be a new form of a database, there might be some efficiency there, but we've probably gotten rid of a lot of the value. Um, and so instead what we've seen now is this steady emergence of what I kind of call a parallel world of crypto finance where regardless of you know, how many safeguards we try to encourage for our portfolio companies, what's happening is there's a parallel world of crypto finance being constructed. Um, there are on-ramps on and on-roads, uh, for example, like Coinbase here in the US that allow people to take my US dollars and convert them into that cryptocurrency. But then once I send that away and I can control it, you know, it, it's kind of an open world, right? So, it is easy to kind of tamper down on some of these specific on-ramps, but other companies are built in an entirely kind of what we call a crypto-native way, right? So they're not touching US dollars, they're not touching renminbi, they're not touching any traditional currencies, they operate in a pure crypto context. Now obviously if that's the only realm that they can exist, then their market will be significantly limited. But for now what we are seeing is this kind of beautiful experiment that's going on the side where, you know, um, and I say beautiful like hesitantly because there are some, some dangerous things that are happening here, but I think the opportunity vastly, vastly exceeds uh, the risk that's involved. Um, so in general, I think what we've seen is our portfolio companies try their best to adhere to regulation, but what we're seeing is a lot of them start to move offshore and find more favorable jurisdictions where, I mean, at the end of the day, the access points here are the internet. Mm -hmm. So unless we want to take away Americans' right to use the internet, they will be able to access these systems and they will be able to get into them, mm -hmm. which is both has upsides and downsides mm -hmm. to it. 
Um, uh, Jaime, what are you seeing with, uh, at FINRA, looking at these technologies and the risks that they pose? How do you make that balance between, I want to allow for innovation and make sure there is access in this space, but uh, we are concerned with issues related to fraud or um, other abuses, and technology is a quick way for people to abuse the system. Yeah, I don't think there's any um, magic recipe, but I think you know where we start off obviously is, is within the existing regulatory framework that, that exists now. Um, we actually about a month ago put out a special notice um, on fintech innovation that basically asked that question that you asked me is what, in addition to kind of the things we've already done, what are additional steps we can take uh, either tailing our regulatory framework or otherwise to think about uh, new entrants into the market and is, are there ways that we can alter ourselves to potentially think about some of those issues. I think as we've come across firms who've operated in this space, I think there's, there's a couple of things that we try to do. One of which is that one is try to understand the business that they're, that, that they're running. Um, and I mean this in the sense that I think with a lot of innovations, there's actually a potential to reduce a lot of the risk that exists now, right? So we talk about a little bit about this in the context of our blockchain report that we put out. There's a potential for different digital distributed ledger technology systems to minimize certain types of risks that exist in, in the system that, that, uh, that currently exist. However, they probably introduce new risks into the system as well. Mm -hmm. So it's making sure you have an understanding of kind of what are the things that are being benefited as a result of this and what are the things that are an issue so that when you're looking at the firms, potentially from an examination standpoint, you know kind of what types of things to focus in on. Mm -hmm. Um, with the advent of all of the various technologies in this space, it seems like it has an opportunity to change not just the way in which we form capital in our society and the way retail investors interact with, uh, with investment opportunities, but as you were mentioning, changing the way that we even run the whole financial system as a whole. And I'd be curious to get some of your comments, especially Spencer, um, about how these new technologies can actually transform the way that we are, uh, we operate our capital markets. There are efficiencies to be gained from the settlement process and other uh, ways of speeding up the transaction space. Blockchain is one way of doing that, but there are other companies that are working in that space. So how is technology itself changing the financial marketplace itself in that, in that process? Yeah, I'd love to jump in here. Thanks, mm -hmm. Lydia. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in general, I think we've touched on some of this, right? So ICOs have obviously enabled this great ability to, for, for capital formation, which I, I don't think I need to tell anybody in the crowd is inc incredibly important for a growing economy. Um, that's the great side. So, I mean, you're able to see, you know, projects, very ambitious projects, raise large amounts of money very quickly. The downside is, of course, some of the things that I think don't necessarily even need new regulation to address, right? Like, fraud is still fraud. It doesn't really matter if I do it with penny stocks, with crypto, with timeshares. That should be prosecuted. Like, and I think everybody's on the same page there. Um, but it should be balanced against, again, also this opportunity for people to participate um, in, in exciting new offerings. Um, and it's not just the capital formation part of it, it's the financial inclusion part that I know has been such an important part of today. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that you've now taken, the internet is now the lowest common denominator to have a bank account. And we have had other services that have enabled people to use the internet to access a bank account, but they did not create new financial infrastructure, right? So Venmo made it easier for me to use the traditional financial infrastructure in a new digital context to use it online, but it did not create new financial infrastructure. It just made a fancy new front user interface that made it better. But what we now have with, with some of these public blockchain networks like Bitcoin is actually new financial infrastructure that is natively digital and in doing so allows for a whole new realm of possibilities. Mm -hmm. That's great. Hardeep, um, in, in, with Motif, you guys, of course, have your retail investor 
application, which is a lot of fun to play with, and people can pick trades based on the things that um, they value the most, that values investing. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that side of your, your application, but also some of the other areas where you are taking data and helping to transform the way that uh, market participants are interacting with the financial markets? Right. To, to the earlier panel, like uh, most investment companies are going to be data companies, and it's a function of what they choose to go in with that data. Um, and 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 one of the th we we do a couple of things. Uh, we're we're launching a product uh, tomorrow. Uh, which will, uh, I'll say this carefully, allow investors to invest in AI. A and in the old days, uh, people uh, would, a large bank or large institution that wanted their clients to invest in AI would pick up the phone, call a research shop, and in about six months of traditional equity research, they'd come out and put a model together, uh, and it will take six to eight months uh, to go develop that model. What we do, uh, in contrast, to give you a sense of, of the speed, um, while they're even writing their project plan, in about two minutes, we suck up everything that's ever been written on AI. We put in this big database, and we unleash these NLPs, which you can, if you're not familiar with the term, think of a web crawler with an investing brain on it. And in about two minutes, it will do what the human team would have done, um, and it will come up with a, an intelligent index, a portfolio of companies, um, and obviously will include Google and Microsoft. I'll come back to them in a second. But it will also include companies like Ford and Boeing. And people go, Why, how do you know Ford, Boeing is not doing anything? Because we've mined patent databases. We know what they're filing. We're no so, so it becomes an arms war of data. And, 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 and that notion is very important when it comes to our institutional business because the markets are very, very efficient, especially mm -hmm. in the United States. Many of our clients don't like to invest in the public markets unless they have mm -hmm. an edge or an angle. Uh, and when it comes to retail, um, you know, obviously we, we're, we're very sensitive to the, the, the F word, Facebook, um, uh, around here. But we, we can tell you anything about anyone right now. The data is all out there. And, and so the notion of what we try to do is to tailor products to people using data. Uh, and it's a relatively new mm -hmm. phenomena. Uh, the, the big uh, uh, tech companies have been doing this for a while. And obviously getting to the notion of how you use data, I mean, one of the things I was deming not too long ago, uh, the, even the, the very simple notion of opening up a brokerage app, mm -hmm. um, pretty soon you'll be able to give a, your email and everything you could possibly want mm -hmm. in, in, in validating and doing your, your, your regulatory KYC and, and AML, you're done. And the only reason it doesn't get done today is it would freak your clients out and, and they'd say, <laughs> wow, all this information is sitting out there. So I don't think uh, the industry, and I'll put in a little, little plug for Hamey, um, what I love about working with certain regulators is they actually listen, right? They may not do what we want at the pace of what we're going in, but there are so many regulators out there where, you know, just getting access and just going in because the industry has a huge vested interest in educating the regulators. And there are certain regulators who say, we don't understand the blockchain. We don't understand how we apply the control provisions uh, 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 to a blockchain audit, for example, when, when the, uh, an SEC regulator comes in. And, and, and if you get the right sentiment, at some level, we are, I mean, every uh, 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 regulator says we're trying to promote innovation. You'll, they'll all, uh, 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 Robert Cook said that uh, in, in his first speech. Um, but it's how they implement it. And I think what we're trying to do is they're all this unknown data to the notion of algorithms and technologies and people. 
we have a very simple premise. Technology will solve the problems that technology, that, that applies whether it's ICOs or, or, or whether you're doing what we do uh, around understanding consumer demand. Um, and I think it's this provision when things get so complicated, people don't understand, the reaction is, wait, 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 slow down. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying is, and, and I always tell the right, you can have my algorithms, you can have the code. And we've had a lot of uh, discussion around the most uh, primitive uh, of all uh, algorithms that, that some people like to call robo-advisors, right? Those are target dates with a beautiful UI on it. And we do have a robo, uh, <laughs> confess, but I hate them. And, um, but this notion of an industry that gets so worked up, and the reason the regulators latched on to robos, of all the algorithms, it was the easiest ones for them to get their hand around. But there is a whole array of algorithms around AI and machine learning that it's just hard. And, and I appreciate when I hear about regulators hiring computer scientists, um, and, 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 and we say this even when we're talking to our, our big Wall Street partners, that pretty soon asset management, you won't be able to get a job unless you have a computer science degree. Mm. I think that's going to apply to the regulation as well, which, you know, as, as whoever's out there trying to plan like uh, the, uh, the, the growth of regulators and the skill sets over the next decade, I mean, that's something we're going to have to include because we're not going to solve any of the problems we're talking today unless we have a common basis of understanding. And that's been the challenge for us Silicon Valley types here is we just don't believe anyone understands what we're trying. So we've tried to distill it, make it simple. But boy, would it be great if we could have a partner on the regulation thing. Because at the end of the day, we want to root out fraud, but we do want to promote innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I could just mm -hmm. echo some of those statements. You know, one of the things we ask about specifically, and it's probably easier, we were talking a lot in the abstract, but one of the things specifically we ask about in our special notice is how do you go about complying with rules around supervision that FINRA has that others regulators may have as, as well when you're dealing with AI-related issues, right? Whether you're talking about in the context of, of make, helping investors make decisions and so forth. Um, you know, typically you'd supervise a person by making sure you have a check on what he's doing, what decisions he's making. A lot of these AI-related algorithms, it's much more difficult to do that in. And what we've heard is that basically for any individual decision, you may not be able to trace exactly how that was done through the algorithm, but you can come up with kind of processes about how kind of a decision was made. And I think for us, and we ask about this, for, for at least from speaking for myself, I think one of the main things that people have to think about is that, yes, you can do make potentially make even better decisions using these AI techniques, but there has to be some safeguards there to make sure the bad decisions are being caught, right? So we talked about AI supervising AI in the other panel. Um, that's some of the answers that we've heard as, uh, uh, as well. But I think there needs to be some type of control system there. And then that's really, I think, what we'd, we'd look to as regulators is making sure that there's a way to monitor what's happening, to make sure that it's kind of things are not going off the rails. And if there's a potential for that to go off the rails, there's some mechanism to catch it, mm -hmm. right? So I think, I think it's incumbent on both, both of our parts, both the regulators and the innovators, to make sure that we're listening to each other and kind of understanding what the concerns are of the other, um, but also looking to do it in a way that kind of adds benefits for the investors ultimately, because mm -hmm. that's what we all were concerned about. Mm -hmm. um, that brings me back to a question for you, JW. The, um, looking at the hurdles to capital formation, and we've talked about some ways that these companies are um, getting out there and, and helping to, to transform the marketplace, but what 
Um, can you unpack some of that 100-year-old thinking um, at the regulators that really, um, and, and what are the effects, have been the effects on our capital markets? Um, we've looked at how IPOs are not where they used to be. It's harder for investors to get access to those investment opportunities because we don't have as many IPOs as we had once before. We have limitations on the folks who are able to get into private um, equities as well. Can you unpack some of those challenges that we're facing? Yeah, the federal securities laws, the federal banking structure, coming out of the post-depression era was all built around an information cost story. I mean, effectively, that's what the SEC was built around, an information cost story. And I think it's great to hear about the innovations in, in, in information dynamics. Um, it depresses me a little bit to think about how a regulator built to, built to solve an information cost problem is limiting innovation in information sciences <laughs> right now. And in fact, I think the only thing that might save us is these ideas about machine-based compliance. That might be the only thing that helps us uh, uh, going forward. We need another conference on RegTech next. Yeah, RegTech would be great. Um, where do I see the future? Uh, just to describe the problem a little bit more, though, I think folks generally get the idea. Um, the 33 Act was designed to regulate public offerings of securities, right? Okay, seems pretty, by requiring registration, pretty simple. Um, the 33 Act is abysmally complicated. I hate teaching it um, because it's just so incredibly complicated. It, first of all, it's static. It's built around the idea of roadshows. Uh, there might still be some roadshows out there, but we're beyond that world. We're beyond a world where regulatory um, interpretations need to be focused on the idea of roadshows. But those are embedded in Code of Federal Regulations language, and so that's like holy text to securities lawyers at the SEC. Um, the, the definition of plain terms, like what does it mean to offer a security? Well, the, the securities lawyers over the last few decades realized we don't want to be constricted, so offer doesn't mean what we would normally think is offer. Offer is any communication about an offering. That will treat, we'll pretend like it's an offer so that we can go ahead and regulate that communication, even though no actual offer in the real ordinary sense is happening. So that's the embedded uh, and, and static uh, regulatory structure we have. I don't see a ton of hope going forward, but I see a little bit of hope. Let me tell you why. First of all, um, the SEC is going to do some limited changes to the accredited investor definition that will open up a little bit of a larger base for Reg D and Reg A offerings. Um, we'll see how much they open up the door. Will it just be a slim pretend change where if you have a CFA but you're not rich yet, uh, you, can do, you can invest in Reg D offerings? I don't know, it might be, but hopefully uh, um, you know, the, the crypto mom is going to push us to have a little bit more of, a, of an opening up of the credit investor standard. Because I think, frankly, it speaks to fundamental American values about um, you know, limiting investments to millionaires and billionaires. What, what, what is fair about that? And I think some of the populist sentiment that's uh, undergirding both parties right now needs to get more interested in the idea of the unfairness of the accredited investor definition. I think that we'll see some opening up of of, of, uh, of regulatory relief in, in the digital asset space. But I don't think it's going to come from the SEC. I just don't think the SEC is poised to act on that. I think it will have to come from Congress. But there are conversations emerging about FinTech and Congress on both sides of the aisle where they realize that financial inclusion, access to credit, access to investments um, is, is, is possible in this space. And in a more cogent and, and, and predictable and, uh, and, and, and helpful way, than you know, the Community Reinvestment Act, which sort of says, essentially says, well, big bank, when you're about to do a big merger, promise to do a little bit of cheap credit to poor communities, and then we'll let you go ahead with the merger. You can get a lot more access to credit if you have people who are actually finding new ways to bring 
uh, high credit risk folks into the financial system because they want to make money, not because they want to do a little bit of a sort of a fig leaf of compliance with the CRA. So I think there's some possibility for reform in the Congress uh, on, on digital assets, uh, digital asset uh, fundraising, and, and some possibility of opening up the accredited investor definition, but only if they listen to the crypto mom. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, if I could jump in again, mm -hmm. I, I'm a bit more optimistic. You know, if you look at our capital markets, they're the, some of the most they are the most efficient capital markets in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the amount of investor participation there is across the system, our system is successful. Not to say that it can't be made better, not to say that we can't do things differently, but I think we have to kind of when we're thinking about these issues and we think about issues around innovations, we have to recognize we have a, actually have a fairly good system right now. Um, but to add to that, I don't think that means we sit on our laurels, right? I, I think that's, that's the idea behind the Innovation Outreach Initiative that we started at FINRA. I think we have to be open about thinking about things in a different way. Um, that being said, I don't think you throw the baby out of the bathwater. Um, we have to make sure that the things that help make our system successful, which is basically trust in the market, having investors think that they can invest in the market and have some, some kind of reasonable assurance that what, what they're doing is going to be protected in some way, I think those are also important safeguards you have to think about. Mm -hmm. I think other good news uh, to add on that is uh, I was in China not too long ago meeting with their regulators, and uh, they were telling me how the, 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 the markets in the U.S., how they differ. I think they were saying 60% of tr daily trading in the United States is driven by algorithms. In, in China, and uh, retail is about 10% in the U.S. In China, it's 90% is retail, and they're still starting to scratch. So there is a, two parts of that. One is the advance and sophistication of our markets is there, but you've got to ask yourself that 60%, you're going to start to see that grow, and pretty soon, but as we talk about AI and stuff, machines will start doing most of the trading, and that number is going to be inevitability. So as we think about access to markets, even the very definition of what it means to be access, it might be a, a discussion on what algorithms are doing it on behalf of us, because we've got better things to do than track the markets all day. Mm -hmm. Given that we do live in a globally competitive environment um, and we compete on regulatory frameworks as well, how are we comparing in the capital market space to the rest of the world? And what is um, what do we do as the U.S. to maintain uh, a competitive markets to to keep them thriving and growing and, and, and being as beneficial as they well, have been? So the U.K. does a much better job than we do in a lot mm -hmm. of ways on private markets, uh, on crowdfunding. Their approach to crowdfunding. Uh, was uh, their approach generally to the credit investor definition is, look, we're not just going to look to wealth or your average income. If you've got some experience with private markets, we'll let you into a broader scope of private markets. So, for example, I think what we can learn from them is um, once you get a little experience with crowdfunding, you realize that investments don't always work out, you're ready for Reg D and Reg A offerings. I think that's part of what should be in the credit investor definition reforms we see. Mm -hmm. um, but then if you want fun experiments in libertarian finance, New Zealand. New Zealand is a great place to look at for, for banking reform, for securities offering reform as well. Spencer, do you have any thoughts on, on the international aspects? No, so it is super interesting. I mean, it's very obvious in, my, in, in the crypto and blockchain industry that uh, regulatory competition is very, very real. Um, you do see a fluidity in the companies of where they will go and base themselves. We have this conversation on an ongoing basis with almost every investment that we're considering as they try to decide where they want to set their roots down. Um, so, you know, th that is very real. I think also it's worth acknowledging that we do have a relatively efficient capital market and it has proven to be a great model so far. Now, that said, I think that's mostly a byproduct of what it's been over the past 50, 60, 70 years and not necessarily does not mean that a 
uh, past performance will predict future performance here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you know, we could be at a point where, where we do need a, a broader kind of reshaping in order to guarantee the same robustness going forward. Mm -hmm. I think the big point is we as a country, as a society, need to aim bigger. Like nothing frustrated me more than all the energy that went into turning our settlement date from T plus three to T plus two. Yeah. Uh, the amount of money we spent, the amount of distractions and costs. You know, now we're on par with the rest of the world. Congratulations. Wouldn't it have been great if we had spent all that energy to leapfrog? So we've really got to demand from our regulators, demand from, from, from our leaders to start aiming bigger, right? And, and I think we've lost a lot of that competitive attitude um, because you're right, the markets are very, very competitive. Um, it is so easy to pick jurisdictions if you're a large firm. For the little firms, we have that opportunity too now and it's a decision that we always try to figure out is like where is our home going to be? Um, and if we don't start to aim big, we, we, we want to be retain the leadership we have with the, the, the markets. But, but it seems like we've got a lot of threats from international markets that are doing a better job. It's fascinating. We're about ready to open it up to some questions from the audience. So if you guys want to get your questions ready, we've got mics going around the room. Um, it's, uh, as, as mentioned before, please identify yourselves uh, and wait for the mic to show up. Uh, please frame your questions in the form of a question with a question mark. Um, and um, so we will see if there are any uh, questions out in the audience. Here in the front. And one way back there as well. Uh, my name is Chris Ross. I'm with the Government Accountability Office. And I... Uh, in the UK, uh, the FCA sandbox, uh, they've had a number of uh, capital markets use cases, blockchain-based uh, use cases go through. And it seems like the way that they have it set up is, you know, they set up the experiment and it creates a space for regulators and uh, innovators to basically work out how regulation applies to those use cases. And so it seems like that might be the capital markets in particular in the US might be a space that's really uh, uh, open to that, or it would really be helpful in the capital markets. Uh, so just wanted to see if, if you had any thoughts of what a sandbox would look like at the SEC or FINRA, and uh, how that uh, might be helpful or applicable in the uh, US context. Who wants to grapple with that one first? Well, one little piece of that, a microcosm of that, is the exciting things uh, I think blockchain can provide to corporate law, to, to interactions between shareholders and the board of directors, uh, sort of blockchain-based corporate governance, blockchain-based charters, things like that, in addition to just keeping track of shareholders and shareholder votes and shareholder consents and those things. Um, all of those interact, uh, develop, originate under state law, but they can have federal securities law implications through some creeping federalization of corporate law that's happened at the SEC. I think we'll see that play out directly. That'll be unavoidable for that to play out. Um, Delaware, which is a leader in corporate law, is just beginning to play with blockchain and corporate governance. And uh, at some point, they're going to hit a wall with the SEC. And we're going to see if the SEC wants to take the UK approach or not. Because the SEC already internally has the authority and has utilized in the past the ability to put questions of state corporate law to the states and say, look, you answer this and we'll go with the answer. They put it to the state Supreme Court of the state chartering the firm in question. Um, and so in that way, they can incorporate some of what Paul was talking about in the last panel, the sort of respect for the states as laboratories that the, the uh, CFPB is trying to do in their sandbox. 
Um, so I think that opens up some possibility if the SEC is willing to do it. It's a question of whether they're willing to go along with that. But I think it'd be a fun way to see that evolve at the SEC. Yeah. And I think one interesting thing to add on to all this discussion is thinking about the incentive structure of uh, people in charge of making some of these decisions, right? Like in general, my view, which may be biased, that it's generally slanted towards conservatism. Um, don't rock the boat. Make sure that you do not approve something that causes some sort of significant financial harm. But in doing so, there's also a harm from the things that did not come to the market that could have greatly benefited a lot of people. That's what we do not see, right? What we do see is when something gets approved and someone is harmed. So I think that mostly from a regulator perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to keep most of those things out, even if the net benefit would be positive. Mm -hmm. Jaime, do you have some thoughts about a sandbox at FINRA? Sure. So we have actually talked uh, at FINRA with, with our foreign counterparts, including having a number of discussions with the folks of the UK FCA. Um, the Ontario Securities Commission is also set up. It's not quite a sandbox, but it's the sandbox light um, uh, regime. Um, Australia has also done one, Singapore. Um, and I think, you know, what all those are varying different kinds of sandboxes. So you, you, kind of when people use the word sandbox, it's not monolithic. There's different types of uh, regimes that are operate under. Um, I think it's a question we have to be asking ourselves as regulator. Is there, do we have space for it? Is there room, is there room in that in the context of how we go about thinking about new firms that are just starting their business? Um, and we do, and as, as I mentioned in our special notice we put out about a month ago, we do ask that question. Is there, is there other things that we can learn from foreign regulators? How would people think about you know, how that applies in the context of FINRA, which has a much more limited regulatory regime that it operates under than entities such as the UK FCA or even the SEC? Um, but it's one I think that's worthy of, of asking, and it's one worthy of asking about how we would go about doing it if we were to do it. I think the challenge is you have individual sandboxes, but so many of the issues around crypto, for example, are those inter-regulatory frameworks. So even if you were to convince FINRA to do a sandbox, it doesn't really matter. And that's where you see the biggest challenge. We've piloted a bunch of stuff where we've let our regulators know, but those are ones where you fall under kind of single jurisdiction regulators. Once you start talking, especially in crypto, it's been very frustrating because there's so many people and no one's really sure who's mm -hmm. on point. Uh, and, and, and so we end up talking to the states, talking to the SEC, talking to FINRA. And that just, unless we get that alignment, so even, I'm not super big fan of, uh, of sandboxes because the hardest issues require a lot of coordination uh, to get that framework done. And we've been waiting for quite some time to see something like that happen. We'll go to the question over here. Hi, thanks. Uh, reasonably benign question. Uh, it's about the language, and I'd like to hear your uh, opinions on this. So I'm Rick Roberts from Vulcan Capital. Uh, for anybody in the audience, how much of the friction in the system is due to the syntax and the language, crypto versus fitting into the regulatory environment? And anybody can address mm -hmm. it, Paul. So is our, 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 our terms too, too undefined to fit into our regulatory framework, JW? Well, um, uh, the financial regulators are very much, have always been lawyer-driven agencies. I think at the CFTC, uh, Chairman Giancarlo has tried to change that a little bit, hiring people who have PhDs or people who wear sandals to work at the CFTC. I think he's described it. <laughs> um, and that's a good thing. That's a very positive thing for regulators. But they're still lawyer-driven agencies, and so they look to language, and um, they they and they know how to. I wouldn't say they're very reverent for language, 
They're not reverent for statutes. They take statutes, they grow the reach of their authority through playing with language, playing games with language. And then they're very reverent in how they treat the Code of Federal Regulations that give them this sort of broad authority. Um, there's also some issues in the, um, you know, I, I think in some of the ICO community, possibly just because it's a nascent community, there's just not a lot of uh, realization of that. And so, for example, you often hear the myth in that community that if you're a utility, then you don't have to register. That's, that's, maybe that should be how the law works, but that's definitely not, <laughs> that's not even remotely true. Um, uh, but I think we could, to the last question, another place to look to is the Swiss. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of regulatory competition. And how I hope ICO reform works is, essentially, if you're mostly utility, but a little bit of security, you go to the FTC. And the FTC says, all right, have some basic disclosure about what, what's going on. And if you take the money and go to Bermuda with it, We'll come after you, and otherwise, you know, good luck to you. We hope it works out. I think the FTC is more willing to do that than the, than the SEC. So. Gotcha. No uh, um, SEC lawyer jokes to comment yeah. on so, language I mean, there. My, so my joke is very simple. My, we believe in reincarnation. So mm -hmm. my, I tell my wife, who is a lawyer, my next life I want to be an SEC uh, attorney, or I should say securities attorney. Mm -hmm. um, and then they go, why? Well, because you get paid 1800 bucks an hour, and all you got to do is say no all day. It's a great job. <laughs> 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 so language does matter, and, and, and the legalese, um, I, think, I think part of it is we've got to distill, mm -hmm. right? The, the amount of time that we've spent, uh, like, days highlighting words within agreements that have to do with securities law that were written a long time ago. But I, I, I think principle-based regulation is where the world is going to. Uh, and I think that's going to make things like, what is the intent? And I think that'll actually help speed, and it's something we're mm -hmm. learning from the rest of the world. And they've been, Singapore is a good example, the UK, they've really pushed to this principle-based culture. And we were lucky. Uh, when we started Motif, um, that was the time our regulators here started thinking about that, because otherwise they wouldn't have allowed us to launch because we didn't fit into anything that, that exists today. Yeah, it's a big challenge. So we full a, disclosure, oh, I was going to say, I, I was an SEC attorney. So, before <laughs> I, did, so I, got, I got doubly whacked. But I used to be an engineer, so maybe that could right. some, some, some <laughs> plus points. Um, you know, I have to say, I think a lot of what we've been discussing has been around kind of, you know, is, is at least what the question was maybe asking, is, is language, are we stuck on language? And I actually think we have a bit of principles-based regulation in this realm. But what principles-based regulation often gets you is gray areas, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't have both. You can't, you can't ask for definitive statements about when something crosses the line or not and say you want a principles-based system as well. Um, if you look at the Howey test, or if you look at the, the regimes for what would determine how securities are based, it's, it's, it's based off various types of principles. And what you get with that are sometimes gray areas, right? Um, and that does open up to interpretations, and I'm sure different people will take different views on that. Um, I guess my only point on this would be that I don't think that's really where I see the really being the issue. I, I think to me the issue is really if you do fall within a certain regime, how do you go about treating that product in a way that still allows it to exist, still allows it to flourish, but still allows it to have the protection that, that it needs in order to have investors have confidence in that market? That's very helpful. We have a question over here. And is there another one over in this area? OK, thank you. Uh, my name is Andrew Gillette. I'm a developer um, for a variety of different uh, crypto startups. So my question is, given that um, Main, Street's, uh, Main Street has diminished, but Wall Street has increased. 
um, a lot of the a lot of these startups end up becoming like main street organizations, like startup organizations that are going to be emerging technologies that will become new players in the new economy. My question, though, is that since so many people have already left for places like Malta, what are you going to do to bring back these emerging technology groups that will be, you know, p potentially a big part of our new economy? I think this gets into a good wrap-up question for the panel: is sort of how, uh, what are some of the changes we need to see? Um, to maintain um, uh, competitive markets and, and, and where we go from here? Well, I think we're, we're in episode two, uh, where the empire does strike back and, and you're seeing uh, the, the big, large incumbent institutions replicate or buy or acquire or, in some cases, scare off um, uh, startups. So, uh, but I do believe in the Jedi's long term. So um, I think what needs to happen to there, honestly, is, is there's a reality dose that startups need to, to get through. Uh, one is um, um, it, you, you can't wait for regulation. And you, there are ways to work within the regula regulatory framework, no matter how difficult that is. I spend 20% of my time either directly or indirectly dealing with regulation. That is a huge tax. Mm -hmm. Um, but I bet you, you talk to large institution CEOs, they're doing the same thing. So I think in, in terms of those startups, you, you can run, but there's a better way uh, to come back and actually compete within this framework. Um, and, and I think that's an inevitability. People are going to come to that conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, if there's one thing I think that, that helps you know, retain innovation here in, in the US, it would be just clarity in general. I mean, the number one thing I see from our portfolio companies, they approach a fork in the road and they don't know if going left will be the safe path or going right will be the safe path. And honestly, even if it's relatively strict regulation, at least having that clarity allows them to navigate it. And it's the uncertainty that I think causes a lot of, it uh, really harms the capital formation. It, it greatly diminishes the speed at which these startups advance. Um, and so, yeah, so clarity would be the number one thing I think can come back here. Um, and one other thing to add to this conversation is just we're talking about Malta, we're talking about the UK, we're talking about New Zealand, we're talking about Singapore. I, I would introduce another jurisdiction, and this is probably where I'll lose about half the room here, um, but there is another jurisdiction that's competing, and it's the jurisdiction of the cloud. Um, so again, when I talk about this parallel world of crypto finance, this opt-in world where people are moving into it, it, does not, it is not rooted in a particular jurisdiction, a lot of it. There are on-ramps and there are portions of it that are rooted in a particular jurisdiction, but a lot of it exists simply on the internet in the cloud. So that will be a new thing to compete with, too. <laughs> Next gen on the cloud. That's great. <laughs> Excellent. I'd like to thank our panel today.